Hi everyone and welcome back to the Parama podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show everyone and uh, good to be here again and um, I'm excited today. Another new guest on the show. Um, this is a conversation I've been really looking forward to. Um, uh, Dr. Amy Marshall, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really great to have you on the show and have a really great conversation today. I'm really excited to hear your story. Tell us, just tell us a bit about about yourself before we really sure. get into it. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a psychologist uh, in the United States. Uh, if you know the map at all, I'm in South Dakota, um, but I'm, I'm licensed in South Dakota and then also North Dakota and Montana. Um, so I can do telehealth across, you know, in the states where I'm licensed. Um, and I also have uh, ADHD and I'm autistic. Uh, I was specializing in both of those things for several years before I realized that I was talking about myself too. So, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how that happens sometimes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes, I had a guest on the show um, earlier this year who is an author who wrote a, a series of books and um, called Geek Girl, and um, which are kind of based on her life. And people started coming up to her and saying, is, is your lead character autistic or based on an autistic person? And she's mm-hmm. like, no. And then and she started to realise that actually she was oh, autistic. Yeah. Um, okay, and so the bit was autistic because mm-hmm. uh, it was based mm-hmm. on her. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, sometimes we don't, we don't always realise. I had to have people point it out to me as well. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't completely aware. So... Um, I think that's kind of what I, where I want to lean into because sure. it was your journey, your professional journey, kind of led you on a personal journey. So tell us, tell us a bit about how that all happened. Sure. So, and I mean, I think a lot of it is it's kind of the um, assumption that everybody's neurotypical unless they tell you or unless they're proven otherwise. Um, I think we default to that. So it's pretty natural to be like, oh, okay, everybody's neurotypical. I guess that I am too. And, you know, yeah, I, and I had good grades. I mean, obviously I got through an entire doctoral program, Um, but it was kind of like school came pretty easy. And when something was, you know, I, I was either, I was either at the absolute top, I was a complete rock star, or I was barely getting by. There wasn't a lot of in between because things that were a challenge were just like not worth doing at all. And so uh, it would kind of be both ways with it. And I kind of always thought that I was just not trying as hard as everybody else or that I was lazy, which is, again, I don't, I I hate the word lazy as a whole. Um, I think we need to that completely. I don't think anybody just feels like, oh, you know, I'm just going to slack off. I don't really care about anything. But, you know, just evidenced by like, I'm in a doctoral program, I'm writing a dissertation, and I'm like, oh, I'm just lazy. Like, what, why would I have chosen that path if that was the case? Um, So I did my uh, doctoral work in Connecticut. um, And then I did my internship and my postdoc in Arkansas. Um, and a lot of my intern training and postdoc training, uh, we did the IEP assessments, um, individualized education plans uh, for kids who were having difficulty in school. Uh, so a big part of my job was identifying 
uh, dyslexia, um, ADHD, autism, you know, who, who needs some support, who has these diagnoses. Um, and then in the office therapy, we, we also got a lot of ADHD and autism referrals. So basically my specialization training was in identifying these two things. Um, and then when I finished that, I came to South Dakota because uh, my husband was in nursing school here at the time, uh, well, boyfriend at the time, husband now. Um, and I, I got a job working with kids, you know, similar population, because that's what I had expertise in. Um, that, that and trauma, I did a lot of work in trauma. Um, and I, uh, around 2020, when everything shut down, um, I started noticing like, oh, hey, I actually do have a little bit more difficulty with certain things. I didn't realize that these things were challenges for me. I was just kind of powering through and doing them. Um, I, th I, think I said the I said to somebody the other day, I said, I never realized I actually am not very comfortable making sustained eye contact with people. And I never really noticed that because I would always just kind of do it. And then I stayed home for 18 months and every interaction was over video. And then I, I left my home again and started seeing people in person. And I realized, oh, I actually really don't like looking people in the eye. I just would, you know, do it <laughs> because it was expected. So a lot of things kind of start clicking into place like that. Um, I started realizing that, um, most of my friends had ADHD, autism, or both. Um, I started connecting with more autistic people, more ADHD people online, because, you know, leaving my house less, I connected with more people over the internet. Um, so I finally decided to get tested just because I wanted to know for sure. Um, I will say I do think that self-identification, self-diagnosis is valid. Um, especially for adults, it's hard to get evaluated. It actually took me a while um, to find someone who evaluates adults. <laughs> so um, actually the, the main person in town who evaluates adults for autism is me. So, you know, <laughs> I had to find someone who would do it. Um, and the first assessment that I did um, they, they gave me a measure that's used to test for autism and that elevated that said that there was a, a good probability that I was autistic, um, but they decided that I didn't meet full criteria. Um, part of that was they said that well, they felt that I was making eye contact in the appointment. Um, and they said that most autistic people wouldn't have the career success that I have. Um, I told them that my job is my special interest. They said, your job can't be a special interest, which I disagree with. I, I think yeah. the thing you love most in the world, like you can get a job being paid to do that thing. And you're telling me that people wouldn't apply for that job. Like if it, if the opportunity came up. Um, so I, I was kind of like, I was thinking about it and I sat with it and I, I thought a lot and I, I said, you know what? If I'm not autistic, then I'm not autistic, but I'm not satisfied with the reasons they gave me for why I'm not. So I'm going to get a second opinion. Um, oh, they, they also said that I don't stim, I fidget. But then I said, how do you know the difference? And they couldn't really tell me. So I was like, OK, I don't I don't think that 
I'm, I'm going to get a second opinion. And if that person says no to, then I, um, that then I'll, then I'll drop it. You know, if, again, if I'm not, I'm not, but not for those reasons. Um, after I got, so in that evaluation, they said I did have ADHD. And so after that, I, uh, put out kind of a call for interviews and I spoke to something like 45 people who had ADHD, autism, or both who had been diagnosed as adults. Um, and that's been an ongoing project for me. I, I want to write about, I, because like the fact that I was specializing in diagnosing ADHD and autism and none of my supervisors, none of my colleagues, I never was like, oh, a lot of this really resonates with me. Um, so I, I was like, I'm going to talk to a whole bunch of people and, you know, write a book about this, which is, it's a work in progress, um, at this point, which is, it's also hilarious to me that they thought that I don't special interest because my response to getting diagnosed was I'm going to talk to 50 people with this diagnosis about their experience being diagnosed. Um, so one of the people I was interviewing for that mentioned who had diagnosed them, um, and I was able to get a telehealth appointment with reciprocity with the state lines issue. Um, and that evaluation, she determined that I am autistic. So, oh, and the reason I ended up um, getting the evaluation in the first place, the thing that kind of pushed me over the edge with it was that when I was evaluating adults for autism, uh, they kept asking me if I was autistic. And I was like, no. You know, I just I'm, I'm just really passionate about being an ally for this community. And, and they were like, are are you sure? Because you, you seem like it. So none of my colleagues noticed, but my autistic clients had it figured out. That's really, isn't it? That's really interesting. <laughs> so people who actually got the lived experience of autism could tell you had autism. The people who were meant to be experts in it couldn't. Uh, <laughs> Um, oh, that's a that's a great story. Um, yeah, I mean, how how is that? It's so so ironic, isn't it? We don't. Mm-hmm. It's like that thing that you can often see something in somebody else, but you can't see it in yourself. Like, mm-hmm. like, and that, and that that kind of trope of of the thing you criticize most in other people that annoys you about other people is something that annoys you about yourself, right? But you can't see it. Because mm-hmm. we, it's difficult to, to sit outside yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Wow, that's incredible. So, um, yeah, and it must be awesome to do your have your special interest as your job. As yeah, well. it's it's nice. <laughs> it's hard. I can be a bit of a workaholic. Um, my husband will tell you that I have trouble, um, you know, actually taking breaks and stuff because. I get to, you know, I, I can be like, oh, no, it's it's fine. It's it's fine because, you know, we, we have to pay our bills and this is helping with that. So, yeah, yeah. Turn it off. But um, that's really awesome. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did that diagnosis change? First, how did it change kind of your day-to-day life, but also how did it change your approach to your work? Sure. Um, I don't know that a whole lot changed day to day other than, I mean, I, I have been involved, like I said, with some advocacy kind of things. So I did shift a little bit in that because I was I was approaching it as this is a community that I care about and that I support, but I'm not a member of it. So I should be supportive this particular way versus 
you know, learning that I was autistic, I was like, oh, hey, I can I can say, hey, as an autistic person, here are my thoughts instead of, you know, um, hey, here's, you know, I, I still I still will will do like here's other voices you should listen to. I'm not I'm certainly not the spokesperson for everybody um, or anything like that, but I can speak to my own experience and not defer on everything. Um, and so, but date, yeah, day to day, pretty much the same. Um, I kind of, you know, I, I have been, well, with the ADHD diagnosis, I noticed I've been nicer to myself because I'm, I'm awful at keeping in touch. I probably have like five or six work stuff I am on top of, but I've got five or six emails from friends just sitting in my inbox, you know, that are weeks old. And I'm like, I, I do need to answer those and, and let them know that I care about them. And uh, the, the narrative in my brain used to be, well, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a bad friend. But now it's no, I have I have ADHD. And this is how my brain works. And I don't get back to people right away. And that's fine. Like, there's nothing inherently bad about replying to an email a week later, if there's nothing in there that you know, the world's not going to end if I email my friend back on Thursday instead of Monday. Like, so exactly. I, I've been able, yeah, been able to be nicer to myself with that. Yeah, that's almost a relief, isn't it? Because I, yes. that's one thing I had with ADHD. I, I remember like, I, I could be so, like, I can occasionally be really bad at getting back to people or just forgetting mm -hmm. to get back to people or yeah. whatever. And I used to, I used to really beat myself up over it and, shame myself for it and oh, like, I'm such a bad person I can't remember to get back to people and um and then I found out I had ADHD and I was mm -hmm. I was like oh, right that, that that's that makes sense right that I would mm -hmm. get focused on something else like completely into that and I would forget about this and or tell myself I'm going to get back to them and then not mm -hmm. get back to them um mm -hmm. and all of that you know and um yeah, so there was definitely a that was a that was an experience I had as well. Um, yeah, and um, the other one was that I decided to kind of actually do a work calendar so that I didn't forget to do things for sure. my job. <laughs> because sometimes I, sometimes I get set a few tasks to do, and then you know, even though I know I'm gonna, I know I need to do them, and I can do them fine. I can get so caught up in one bit of work that I forget, you know, the other bit of work, but. Sure. Um, but I solved all of that with mm -hmm. just literally just doing a Google Calendar with reminders, mm -hmm. and then I don't forget. Yeah, um, I mean, I can do my job properly because it does hinder your. It does hinder people at work. You mm -hmm. know, people have told me that people with ADHD often are lower income than mm -hmm. other people. That, that's correct, is it? I believe so. That's the numbers I've read. Yeah. 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 Um, so, but how did it impact your work? Because obviously you were already diagnosing people sure. with, with, with autism. So then being mm -hmm. autistic yourself, mm -hmm. did it change your perspective? Did it, did, it did it help your work? I think so. I think I'm better at it now because certain things I, I'm not, you know, I, I think maybe, oh, well, everybody does that. No, no, they don't. You're just, you're autistic too. So it did help with some of that. Um, I know that it has helped. Uh, and, and like, like I said before, people have the right 
to if whether or not they want to share their diagnosis like people do i do think people have the right to privacy and i think that that extends to therapists most therapists that i know have lived experience in something um but it's up to them if they want to be sharing that publicly and it's and it's hard to share it publicly because we're really taught not to um i knew i had a history of anxiety uh when I was in college and I was applying to grad school and I thought, Hey, I want to, they said, why do you want to be a therapist? And I wanted to speak to that. And my advisor said, if you put that in, in your essay, you won't get in anywhere. Nobody's going to take you if you admit that you have your own history. So I think being open about it myself, I'm hoping to maybe change that and maybe push back on that, make it more okay to share because there are clients who have now sought me out because I'm open about my diagnosis, that there are people who said, Hey, you know, I saw on your website that you have ADHD. I saw on your website that you're autistic. Um, I think that you could help me figure out my diagnosis or what diagnosis I have, or here's what I need. And I think you're going to understand it because you not only did the schooling for it, but you are living it yourself. So I, I think it has been helpful to my clients. And I, I hope we can change that. Um, it's, it's not like a policy anywhere but it gets used against people it's it's stigma it's ableism it's it's awful um so i'm hoping i i want it to be if someone wants to keep a diagnosis to themselves i want it to truly be i want to keep it to myself and i want it to be if someone wants to be open about it they don't have to think well you know am i gonna is my boss gonna retaliate on me if i share about this is my licensing board gonna use this against me or something like that. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have an autistic therapist mm. um, and somebody, yeah. who's, somebody who's autistic, it's really, mm -hmm. really helpful because yeah. I understand intuitively mm -hmm. and from lived experience how my brain works. Mm -hmm. They know exactly how it works. They know what it's like. And because mm -hmm. of that, it's helped me understand my autism better. Help yeah. me understand myself better and help me learn to live with it more easily because, you know, I have a therapist who actually understands what it's like. So, right. yeah, I mean, we need more autistic therapists. Right. Um, in, you know, we do because um, there's so many people who are now finding that they have this diagnosis mm -hmm. that sure. getting the support of somebody who actually has the diagnosis themselves mm -hmm. could be really, really beneficial. Yeah, I think so. I, I'd love for more people to, to be able to be open about it. And honestly, I'd love for schooling to be more accessible so that more autistic people can, the way that the demands of these programs are, are not uh, great if you're not neurotypical. Our education system is not set up for people who aren't neurotypical. So I, I think field needs to be more accessible as a whole, but also those of us who are here should be allowed to say it. And some people, you know, I've, I've had situations where there's been someone who said, I would like my therapist, you know, I don't want to know anything about my therapist. We're here to talk about me. I don't want to know about you. And, you know, okay, then you get to, you're going to go to the therapist who doesn't want to share anything about themselves, who doesn't want to do that advocacy work. But just, just like I should have the right to decide whether I'm sharing it or keeping it to myself, my clients should have the right to say, I want a therapist who shares this with me. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's. I think. Um, yeah, I was wondering what are, especially now you've got the experience of being autistic yourself. What are the, what do you think are the biggest misunderstandings that people have about autism? Sure. Well, I think that we assume it looks a specific way. Um, I think psychologists assume that it looks a specific way. I certainly did for a while. Um, I think I think we need to expand our research and our definition. It's very focused on one. What does autism look like to an observer instead of what does it feel like to be an autistic person? And two, uh, what problems are you having because you're autistic instead of just um, what is it like, again, to be autistic? And I know I know if someone needs accommodations or disability benefits or things like that, we have to have the framing of those deficits. But I, I think that does a disservice because we know if you're autistic, you're born autistic, you're autistic your whole life, but then that gets used against people when they're trying to get a diagnosis because, well, you, you did well in school or you didn't have, you didn't have symptoms when you were five. Therefore you, we can't diagnose you now. You, you're clearly not. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of misunderstandings of, of autism out there. There really are people, and you like it's what it's like what you say. People think if you have to say high functioning people, mm -hmm. uh, like like me and, and you, I guess that you wouldn't think that we're autistic to look at because we mm -hmm. don't fit that kind of stereotype. I would say that people have. For or you make eye contact. You're not autistic. I had I've had yeah, that's right. providers yeah. say that to my clients after I diagnosed them. Oh, you made eye contact. Like, okay, well, if it was as simple as yes or no, do they make eye contact? Then I really overpaid for my training and it took much longer than it should have taken if it's that simple. <laughs> and and even the functioning labels I know have issues because I I would be you know, high functioning is basically, are you good at capitalism? Like, can you work full time? And it's like, I mean, I can, and I've got sensory needs that I can mask when I have to, but it's not a good thing that I, you know, masking really well is not automatically a positive. Like, I've, I've had situations where I, I could feel I'm like, this is not a good situation. And then the automatic thing to do is to mask because you're punished if you don't all your life. And so you just learn how to do it. And I've had situations where I'm acting like everything is great. And then we get home and I just start sobbing. And my husband is like, what's like, what's happening right now? <laughs> it's like you were smiling and laughing three seconds ago. And I'm like, yeah, I'm finally safe enough to let down that I basically felt like I was on fire for the last two hours. But we, you know, but I didn't feel like I could tell you that we needed to leave because it wasn't time to go yet. And it's like that that's what makes me high functioning, <laughs> that I don't freak out until I'm by myself. Like, that's not really a positive. No, it's not. And that's it. I, I love that you mentioned capitalism there because we mm -hmm. that that system that we live in treats our bodies like they're machines and sure. it kind of saps the life out of them until they're done, you know, and um, there's no room for trauma. There's no room for grief. There's no room for any, any kind of 
person, any person who doesn't fit with the stereotype that you're meant to fit into. If you've got any kind of disability, mm-hmm. um, then you're a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to be accommodated, you know, because mm-hmm. capitalism is by kind of default ableist, isn't it? So um, your value is in your productivity. And if you have a disability that makes you less productive, that's bad and you're a burden and and that's you know terrible and you should feel bad and it's like that's the message we're giving people yeah exactly it's 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 a toxic system Uh, Mm -hmm. um how do you think it's possible for people with autism to kind of subvert that and live in a healthy way which kind of an anti-capitalist way even though we're in a capitalist system it's hard because there are the support needs and I feel like it needs to be okay to ask for the support where you need it. Um, I think a lot of accommodations, I, I'm more in favor of like, let's make a system where people don't need accommodations. But in the meantime, it should be okay to ask for them. Um, I'm in the process of transitioning to a private practice so that I'm my own boss. Um, but I will say the organization that I'm transitioning away from, I I got asked before I decided to go private practice, uh, what accommodations do you have at work? And I said, you know what, I've never, I've never needed to ask for any, because it's you decide what hours you're going to work, you decide, you know, when you're working from home, when you're working from the office, you decide when you need, you know, we don't, I've never had to request time off, I just let them know these are the days that I'm going to be out. if I need time off unexpectedly, then just no questions asked. We're very supportive of it. I, mean, I remember um, my husband's grandmother died and he called me at work and, and said, hey, you know, well, not not in that tone. Um, he said, hey, you know, she passed. Um, here's the days that we need to travel for the funeral. And I went into my boss's office and I said, hey, um, my husband's grandmother passed away an hour ago. And he said, oh, OK, so you're leaving. And it, it was just like not even a question like, OK, so you're taking the rest of the day. And, you know, when it, he, he said um, he said, oh, OK, you're leaving. When will you be back? Like he, he just the assumption was, OK, you need to go. Um, I will take care of it. Uh, just let me know when you're coming back. Basically, I didn't have to request. I didn't have to seek like any kind of days or whatever. It's, it's just no questions asked. It's OK to get your needs met. And I think that the system that we're used to is go until you crash and burn. Um, Nobody wants to help you like just be more productive, more, more, more. And that's not sustainable for anybody, but especially because we've structured everything again for how neurotypical brains tend to work. It, it drags on and it wears down autistic people, ADHD people faster, more intensely, et cetera. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does, and I've experienced that. It's oh God, your story. That story about uh, your husband's grand mm-hmm. grandmother. That um, the approach of the people you worked for is incredible. That's how yeah. it should be. That's how it right. should be. Um, oh, see, someone that you care about is dead. Of of course, you're going to leave now. Yeah, exactly. It's like no no questions asked, right? And not yeah. even not even see you tomorrow, but like let me know. Like, of course, you're going to leave right now. When when are you going to come back? Like. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking of the contrast of when my, my, my mother died. Mm-hmm. Uh, I 
I asked for compassionate leave. I, mm-hmm. you know, I took, I took, I, I was off for I think, a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. um, and I came back, and my, my 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 boss tried to make me take it as annual leave, and it was my mother who yeah. had died, yeah. right? And they said, "Oh no, you've got to take it out of your annual leave." Like, no, what? that's extenuating circumstances. Yeah, I was like, yeah, that, that I'm pretty sure you can't do that. And mm-hmm. they, they did try to, and my dad had to ring them up quite forcibly and like make his point to them, like mm-hmm. this wasn't acceptable, and you know, <laughs> think that he would take, you know, that that, um, um, that legal stuff could happen if uh, they didn't um, allow me to, you know. So I eventually, I eventually got it as, a, as compassionate leave, but. Sure. I had to fight for it. It wasn't it was the complete opposite of your experience. And supposedly the law is there so that you don't have to fight for it, but you still do. We run into that, that like the United States has the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I mean, don't don't get me wrong, I'm glad that that exists, but the problem is, and I've I've said this so many times, laws only matter if someone is enforcing them. So, you know, you can go to your boss and be like, hey, it's illegal for you to tell me that this comes out of my annual leave. But if they're like, what are you going to do about it? You know, how do you, you you have to take, then you have to use your energy and your resources to force them to do the thing that supposedly they're supposed to just do automatically. And that I think wears down a lot of disabled Americans because, yeah, the ADA is there, but it only matters if people are following it. And when you have to, when you already don't have as much energy as the people around you, and then you can't just have your accommodations, you have to fight for them every single time. The limited energy that you do have is being wasted because they're not just, they're not just doing the thing that supposedly they legally have to do. Mm, exactly. So they can weigh you down if they keep, mm-hmm. you know, dragging it out, you mm-hmm. know, um, they can they probably think, well, I can I can subvert the system by wearing this person down so they've got no energy to fight anymore, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, 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 it's awful. It's awful. Um, and we have a lot of states that are, we, we call them uh, at-will employment. So it's supposedly illegal to fire someone for having a disability, but in most states, you can fire someone for no reason. So then it's on the employee to prove that it was because of their disability and not just we're allowed to fire people for no reason. So you keep pushing for your accommodations and, oh, oh, we're downsizing. Your, your job's been eliminated. Oh, the system just... fired you, you know, good luck hiring a lawyer. You don't have a job anymore. Oh God! You know the, the system is so rigged against people mm-hmm. um, who who have disabilities. Um, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's just ridiculous, um, and the, people can't see how screwed up this system is as well. Some people, mm-hmm. it's um, it's laughable to be honest. Um, yeah, because it's so. Not even in my 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 job, you know, I. I have to. I had to make accommodations for myself because when I'm going to a new job, mm-hmm. I'm learning a lot of new things, and that's a lot of new stimuli at once. Sure. And one, difficult to remember it, and two, it's a lot of information, so you can easily get agitated if mm-hmm. you're distracted or whatever, you know. And mm-hmm. 
of course, that look that then if you do that, you look bad. Mm-hmm. When actually you're just, well, what is just reacting as it normally reacts? Sure. Right? Because that's how your brain works. Mm-hmm. Because they haven't accommodated you properly. Right. Then it's made you look silly. And uh, and then you get and you can get in trouble for just behaving as your brain is telling you to behave normally because that's how your brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to, yeah, all the time have to make accommodations and mm-hmm. sometimes you have to make accommodations for yourself, mm-hmm. you know, um, before even telling them that you're autistic. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got to make the call if you want to share that because, again, it's it's illegal to refuse to hire someone for being autistic. It's illegal to fire someone for being autistic, but you got to prove that that was why. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm very lucky with my my employer. Um, my manager is actually his his brother is autistic. I think mm-hmm. um, so. They understand. They've been very they've been very helpful and accommodating, and actually so supportive, which is really positive, you know. But um, I know that's not the case for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. work in the public yeah. sector, so yeah. Well, I, I was very. I, I mean, you know, I, I like the working for myself thing. That's very exciting, but. If I weren't going to work for myself, I would have stayed at the agency, the organization where I was, because, yeah, I've never, I've never had to ask because it was just, oh, here's, here's my hours. Oh, I need to change them. Okay, you know, here's what I'm shifting around. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that's how it should be. That's that mm-hmm. should be normalized for everybody. Um, it's just common sense, you know, and it's in our power to do it, but we don't do it. If your work is getting done and you're not violating any ethics codes, all right, <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, what's the biggest change that you would that you're because you still do a lot of advocacy work, and so I, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the biggest change that you're advocating for for autistic and ADHD people? Sure. Uh, Well, as far as in the U.S., I've been um, I found out when I got licensed in North Dakota that they have a a registry um, and there are a few states that have these registries that when someone gets diagnosed with autism and it's just autism, um, the person who diagnosed them is supposed to fill out this form and send it into the health department. And the state government is keeping a, a list of all the autistic people. Um, and I don't like that. Um, it's it's a very detailed, like it's a very in-depth form with a lot of personal information. Um, and I will say I've, I've been working with some other people on this and there, there are several states that have these registries. Um, and I have been speaking to a woman specifically who is digging deeper into some of the other states. And she said that there are states that that do collect anonymous data. So instead of getting like the name and contact information and all like the personal information on the autistic person, it would just be on the diagnosers to just be like, hey, you know, I diagnosed 10 people this year. I diagnosed 20 people this year, whatever. And they've used the numbers data to get funds allocated for supportive services and accommodation. So the concept behind it, I've learned it can be done in a positive way, but North Dakota is requiring just extensive personal information. Um, 
I've also spoken to a number of people in North Dakota who have said there have been no changes in funding since they implemented this database. It's not getting people access to services. It's literally just a list of all the autistic people in the state. Um, so I've been trying to push for them to not have that anymore. Um, not really getting super far with it because I guess it's, it's just not um, like people don't seem to mind that the North Dakota government wants a list of all the autistic people. Um, that makes me incredibly nervous because they say that they're doing it for research. And I'm like, well, but what are you researching? They don't have a research question. They don't have a research goal. They just want a list of all the autistic people. And so I, I do, I would like for them to not be maintaining that data anymore. Um, I also, it's not voluntary. So if I diagnosed someone in North Dakota as autistic and that person said, hey, I know we have this registry, I don't wanna be on it. It would technically be illegal for me to say, okay, you have specifically asked me not to disclose your protected health information, so I won't. And I can be fined up to $1,000. Wow. Yep. For each client, $1,000 per client. So my solution is I don't do autism evaluations in North Dakota because I can't, I cannot ethically follow that law. So if someone in North Dakota contacts me and says they want to be tested for autism, I tell them, I'm sorry, I don't do that. And here's why. Call your reps. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, mm -hmm. that's quite terrifying, really. Yeah. Um, it's like they want they want to know who all the autistic people are, so they mm -hmm. can. So, what does that mean? Employers contact people like yes, like best people and say, "Are they on this list?" You know, like and can decide not to employ them as a result of that. I think you know, right. Well, in best case scenario, they're just not doing anything with this information. They've just got it sitting in a government database, and I mean, the number of leaks that have happened over the years, I, I don't have confidence that they're truly keeping it secure. Um, not North Dakota specifically, but, you know, in general, stuff getting hacked. I don't think it's good to have that information in one more place. Um, and worst case scenario, what exactly are you researching? Because, you know, this is research on humans without their consent and uh i mean i'm pretty sure the nazis were doing research on autistic people without their consent and their end goal was to eradicate us so yeah exactly it's not um not exactly the best is it um, yeah, i'm not saying the government in north dakota are nazis but they're doing a thing that nazis did so yeah <laughs> not good <laughs> <laughs> not good. Um, and, what, and just finally, you're you're compiling this this book of stories. Yep. Um, uh, people's it's, um, kind of part memoir, part qualitative research of like people's experience being identified later in life, basically. So, what what is working on that book? How has that encouraged you? Um, mm -hmm. And and impacted you? Um, it's been slow. The conversations have been awesome. The writing itself has been kind of slow just because I tend to take on a million different things. Um, but it's been, um, it's, it's been interesting to really learn that, you know, like I said, the way that we conceptualize autism is we look at autism looks this one way 
And if you don't look this one way, you're not autistic. But so we're, we're kind of overly rigid with how we imagine it. And we tend to overlook basically the way that most people present. Um, I mean, technically, with the training that I got, um, because autism, you need to show consistency across environments. Basically, if someone's capable of masking, they're not like really autistic, which we know is not the case. We know masking is a thing and a problem. Um, nothing in the DSM talks about burnout. Uh, so there, there, I think it's severely lacking. And I, I think a lot of it is that it's it's people who are not autistic deciding what autism looks like and what's what supports are helpful to autistic people. So um, I think we need to change that narrative around it and have it be the community speaking for ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading this book. It's Yeah. I, I don't have a timeline on it because I do have a, another book that I'm working on on uh, clinical documentation, and that one's got a hard deadline, so I had to do that one first. Ah, but I will. Well, I do finish things. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm just. Um, mm-hmm. I think that I think this book, this book of collection of this memoir mm-hmm. collection of stories, will be really. I think it'd be really useful for autistic people to know they're not alone and to sure. know there's different know different people's experiences um, with autism. But also, I think for people who are not who are neurotypical um, to mm-hmm. read that book and understand mm-hmm. more about what autism is and what autism isn't, and mm-hmm. to see how how much of a variety there is in terms of people's exp- of experiences of autism will be hugely beneficial. Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm so looking forward to that. Look and all the different things that can show up and, and what supports are helpful. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that my husband is not autistic. Um, he hasn't been like tested, but I had him do some screeners online. Um, but he's like, he, there's certain things that he, I just learned how to communicate a little bit better. And I would kind of hold things back because I think, you know, if I say this, I'm going to sound going to sound ridiculous Um, but he's been really good with I've just started being like I know that this might sound ridiculous but here's what's going on and he's so okay great yeah being able to so both for us to you know get to know ourselves better or help people with self-identification and then just other people being like oh here's how I can love and support my loved one who even if I'm neurotypical they're not and yeah Fantastic. That's great. I love that. It must be really good to have a supportive partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for coming on. This has been yeah, really great. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, so tell us where people can find you. Sure. Um, so I'm on, I'm on Twitter um, at Dr. Amy Saidi. Um, my blog is resiliencymentalhealth.com. And then that links to the clinical practice, but I post, you know, not as, not super consistently, but like resources, thoughts, um, uh, tips, stuff like that. So um, I'm also on Facebook, uh, Dr. Amy Marshall, but I'm not super active there. Mostly, mostly Twitter and my blog. Fantastic. Great. I would encourage everyone to check all those out and follow Amy as well. Um, She's great. So yes, thank you for coming on. And when you, when you do have that book, um, come out. Um, we'll have you back on and, and talk about it a bit more. 
because uh, yeah, it sounds really, really interesting. So, yeah, yeah um, thanks for coming on and uh, thanks for listening, everybody.